0: This is Impact Healthcare, people and strategies that are disrupting the health benefits industry. And now, here's your host, healthcare benefits industry expert and the originator of the transparent health benefits movement, Lester Morales.
1: All right. Hello, 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 Impact Healthcare. I am pumped about today's guests. I don't think I've ever actually met her in real life yet because of COVID, but we've done a lot of business together, impacted a lot of lives. So Rachel Strauss from EHIM, say hello to the Impact Healthcare crowd.
2: Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me.
1: Rachel, one of the questions I ask all of my guests, and you know me about my why, but what fuels you with getting out of bed and what I call swimming upstream like a salmon? We could easily work and do the same old thing that everybody else does, but we choose to get up and do something different. What motivates you to get out of bed fired up about this?
2: My own children and my own life, Lester. You know, we work in healthcare and we work in this space but I think until you're really either a recipient of needing to utilize healthcare or a recipient of crazy astronomical EOBs, you know, it really changes everything. And, you know, I'm very proud to say that I'm a mom of a CHD child. My son was born with congenital heart disease, had open heart surgery at five weeks old, and it really just kinda opened my eyes to the healthcare system. So that is part of my why. And really just trying to make a difference for people who cannot afford healthcare.
1: Awesome. So this is a conversation about this specific topic that's near and dear to my heart. So when I was 15 years old, my dad was diagnosed with multiple myeloma and post bone marrow transplant. He was on a drug called Revlimid. And I never knew that drugs could get $150,000. But obviously, I now know and this single handed drug was the reason my parents had to file bankruptcy. So Rachel, let's dive into the conversation of prescription drugs. And for just to lay a level set down, the employers that are listening to this inside of their medical plan, obviously, is their prescription drug program. Typically, it's the 80-20, right? 80% of their cost goes to medical expense and 20% to prescription drugs. But Talk to me about all of the misconceptions around the prescription drug game. Like, hey, bigger is better. Of course, Blue Cross and Cigna and Aetna's PBMs, their pharmacy benefit managers are here to help me. Let's dive into the misconceptions with the vantage point of education today.
2: Sure. So I think the biggest thing that is a misnomer is that every pharmacy benefit manager takes that M. To heart, right? That they're actually managing your prescription drug program. And I think what you're really getting down to is whose incentives are aligned with the health plan. And I think, you know, when you talk about big box pharmacy benefit managers, and, you know, I come from a boutique pharmacy benefit background. That's the world I play in. And in no way, shape, or form am I here to pick on any other pharmacy benefit manager. But I think as employers, you know, Lester, every day all over the country, The common theme is everybody's trying to drill into what's happening with cost. And when you get to specifically the prescription drug piece, it's pretty much the number one biggest driver of increases across the country. So I think that when employers are really trying to figure out how is this happening, the question should get back to is the pharmacy benefit manager who is processing your claims? Are their incentives aligned with the plan?
1: So for everybody out there that might not know who even your PBM is, it might be likely, I think, uh, Rachel, helped me out, 83, 84% of the world, at least in the United States, who gets healthcare through their employers are with one of the big three, CVS, Express Scripts, and Optum. Is that a fair stat? Yes. Okay. So in case the audience is listening, you're like, okay, what is this PBM word? pharmacy benefit manager, and you are probably with one of the big three. And so when we talk about aligned incentives, because my mom always taught me, if you want to know people's true intentions, follow the money. What do you mean by that? Like, how could I have a misaligned incentive if my job is to take care of my customer? So
2: I I think that the incentive all gets back down to how pharmacy benefit managers function and ultimately how they get paid. And I think when you follow the money, you know, and and look, I'm employed by a boutique pharmacy benefit manager. I'm grateful I get a paycheck. So luckily, you know, we are profitable and our company continues to earn money. But I think what happened over the years and the evolution of pharmacy benefit managers really over the last probably 40 years is that in the beginning, it wasn't so upfront how pharmacy benefit managers were profiting. And so when we talk about aligned incentives, it all gets back to what is driving profit. Is it from an admin fee? Is it from what's called spread pricing? And I know we'll probably talk a little bit more about that as we continue in this morning. Or is it from revenue from outside factors, such as pharmaceutical rebates or other incentives? And so when you look at what a pharmacy benefit manager's ultimate profitability comes from, if it's coming from the mass utilization of medication, especially expensive ones, like a rebate model, you're not allowing opportunity for another common theme in the industry this day, which is lowest net cost.
1: So it it seems logical to me. uh, I I am no math wizard, but it it seems logical to me that lowest unit and net cost makes a lot of sense. But you, you said that word spread pricing. So if we're trying to educate the world on this, um, First question that I think this conversation uh, led to is, how does your PBM today get paid? And so um, someone searching around, they don't see a cost, because I, I know having done this my whole career, most clients aren't actually paying any money, quote unquote, for this service. And you mentioned spread pricing as a way of, of, of somebody getting compensated. What What is spread pricing?
2: Sure. So spread pricing um, is when a pharmacy benefit manager negotiates a discount with a pharmacy or a pharmacy network or a mail order provider. And they receive one discount. And then what they're charging back to the client or the fully insured health plan is a different number altogether. And that's where they're building in their profitability is through the spread of price between what they acquired it for and what they're billing the client.
1: A a classic middleman, right? I buy low, I sell high. Uh, And in that scenario, so if if we were uh, advising people, we would say, hey, check out your program today. How much are you paying your PBM to do what they do? They don't see a number. There is spread pricing. Is this a little bit like, are they making a little bit of money? Is this a lot of bit of money? Like, how, how does this work if I've never even seen what the cost is?
2: And, and I think, Lester, that's part of the problem is that it's not disclosed. And so, you know, when PBMs really began, I mentioned the boom of them was probably about 40 years ago. And I say this because in every PBM t- history you see in 1987, I think that was the year of the boom of PBMs. I think what happened was in the beginning, it wasn't a a very large amount, and that was the normal way for pharmacy benefit managers to get paid. But I think as generics kept getting cheaper and cheaper, and this is where you've heard of Lester, $4 generics, right? Walmart was the first one on the scene to really advertise those. What I don't think happened is I don't think PBM adjusted what they were charging in spread. So what was happening is where they got used to charging maybe 40 $50 for a script. Employers were used to paying for it. When the $4 boom hit, nobody was de-escalating what they were charging. And so what started to happen is as generics got cheaper, that spread of price continued to grow more egregious. And I think that is where people started realizing what was going on behind the scenes.
1: So Rachel, is it possible in those examples, using those numbers, I walk in, I could pay cash for $4, But my copay through my health plan might be $10 for that generic, but that generic actually might be getting billed through the plan at $50. Is that like a legit example that could happen
2: today? Yes, among others. I mean, there's also there's there's that example and also the pharmacies if they're charging more than what the cash price is. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen behind the scenes, which is why consumers are really being put at the forefront these days and knowing what their medications cost.
1: So, you know, I'm sitting at at the the dinner table. I see that GoodRx, uh, you know, commercial. Is that a, a method of trying to get to some transparency here?
2: Yes. I mean, GoodRx is a great tool, but, you know, and this we can talk about on an entirely different podcast. But GoodRx is really just another pharmacy benefit manager behind the scenes giving discounted prices. But yes, I mean, GoodRx is a tool that anybody can utilize to at least have an idea of what a cash price of a medication would be.
1: Got it. Got it. So if I'm an employer, I now ask that question, how does my pharmacy benefit manager, PBM, get paid? There's not an admin fee. They're making money in this spread pricing. How is there an analysis that could be done? I mean, like, how how do you even get to that bottom line to know wait a second, how much is my pharmacy benefit manager making?
2: Sure. I mean, there's two ways. I mean, obviously we're talking to employers that are out there that are self-funded, right? I mean, if you're fully insured, it's a little bit more difficult to get a gauge on what percentage of your premium is coming from egregious PBM charges. Um, So I'll kind of answer this two ways. For the self-funded employer, yes. I mean, there's the two easiest ways are first, a claim run to ask your PBM or carrier for a full claim run, which will include an NDC code. That NDC code is kind of like when you go to the grocery store and they're scanning a barcode. Those are the numbers in our world that we're able to determine what the prescription drug is and what the quantity and cost, et cetera, is. The other way you can sometimes do this is if you are receiving top 10 drug reports or top drugs by quantity. That quantity report is going to have a majority of generics, we hope, right? We're hoping, Lester, that most of our listeners are seeing the windfall of so many generics that have come to market in the last decade, that you should have in your top 25 drugs by quantity, not by cost, a list of generic drugs. And we can pretty easily go in there to see what the average cost per script is. You know, you look at common medications, I'll tell you the number one drug we call it in the PBM business is vitamin V, which is Vicodin, unfortunately. Hydrocodone is the number one written um, generic drug out in the country. Um, we can talk about that also and, and why that's out there, but let's just talk from financial. It's a very cheap drug. I mean, we're talking pennies on the pill. If we do a quick math and look at how many scripts are being divided by, you can typically see if they're making more than what's customary from the cash price on that drug.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, again, for the listeners, if you've actually never seen your own program and how that breaks down in cost, uh, and we're talking that prescription drugs is the fastest moving uh, as far as trend year over year, you've got a great tool right there. Uh, You know, Rachel, we talked about quantity and although spread pricing is a way and is a cost factor. It's not really where clients are spending a lot of their money. Um I want to transfer to where the money is going. So again, I'm sitting on my couch last night, I'm watching the Olympics and there are commercials left and right and you know people in a bathtub taking a you know a bath together in the beautiful forest and all of these things and I see all of these commercials um Talk to me about the impacts that that you guys have seen with that direct to consumer marketing, and how just how much drug pricing really comes out of those drugs that we see on TV.
2: You're talking about two kind of different areas we could we could spin this off into. I mean, I think what you know what the commercials have really done in the last probably ten or more years, um, probably even more, because I remember years and years ago with Claritin before it went over the counter and seeing. They weren't taking a bath in the forest, but they were running in the fields for Claritin. Um, but I right, but I say exactly, and we wave our hands in the air like uh, you know from um, from Field of Dreams or whatever. I think what or the hills are alive. That's what I was trying to think of. So I think that what you know has happened is we have a very commercially based educated consumer. So I say educated consumer because they're getting their education from the news, commercials, and the you know newspapers, et cetera. And we now have a you know, a whole environment of patients that are going to the doctors, knowing what script they need before they've even been tested to see if they have those conditions. So the first thing you're talking about when you're really looking at what is driving healthcare costs, is this what we call a me too population, which is I have that too, I need to go to the doctor and I need to tell him what prescription I need before he even verifies if I have the condition that is FDA approved for that treatment. So that's the first thing you've really got. The second area is that the drugs that are on television, and look, there are some lesser miracles of science. There are things that are coming out. We are living in an incredible age where there are things coming out. You know, in the last decade and a half, we have cured Hep C. I mean, there are things that are coming out that are making the world better. But a lot of the drugs on TV are not necessarily the cheapest medication or that miracle of science, right? They're alternative medications. That people, you know, are being advertised to that are simply pharmaceutical companies remarketing an old product in a new way, and again, it is driving cost. And you know, when I think where we're leading this into is where the pharmacy benefit manager's role in all of this is, and that really gets to that word that you hear every year, really, whether you're fully insured or self-funded, which is that formulary. A formulary for our listeners is simply the list of medications that are covered or excluded and how they're covered, right? This is where you get into one of the mechanisms a lot of employers have put in place in the last probably 20 years has been what we call multi-tiered formularies. right? Where you've got preferred drugs, non-preferred drugs. A lot of plans have put in over-the-counter tiers, um, including my pharmacy benefit manager at EHIM. We've been doing that for 20 years, $0 over-the-counter. And, you know, when you think about it, why was this created? Well, you know, if a CFO is listening to this, you know, podcast, the easy answer would be, well, it should be the lower costing drugs are lower copays and the higher costing drugs are higher copays. But unfortunately, Lester, as you know, as well as I do, that's not how some of these formularies are working. At the same time that commercial is on TV, I'm going back to our bathtub couple who's sitting in the forest. At the same time that that commercial is um, being advertised, that company may be striking a deal with a pharmacy benefit manager and saying, hey, we want our drug to be preferred. It may not be the cheapest drug, but we're going to pay you to put our drug on your formulary and make it the cheapest option for an employee. And so what is now happening where we're trying to educate consumers into this, you know, lowest net cost mentality, is we're not only putting it in their face, but we're telling them in a three-tiered copay plan, this one's only $20, it's not $50. But to the plan on the other side, it's actually driving costs up significantly.
1: So I think this is interesting because this goes back to your conversation of aligned incentives. We pay this entity, it's typically part of my health plan, right? So I'm going to what I'll call the IBM of healthcare, right? Nobody ever got fired for hiring Blue Cross for Aetna, for Cigna, right? These are huge behemoths, billion-dollar entities that put me with a pharmacy benefit manager who's also a billion-dollar entity. I'm expecting them to manage a formulary to the advantage of me, either the consumer or the health plan itself. And what I'm hearing is that's not always the case. And a lot of times the drugs and where they're positioned is to maximize the profit for the PBM. So there actually might be a drug that the patient is paying less for. That's actually a higher cost drug because it's pushing up the profit of the PBM.
2: Bingo. And that's exactly what's happening. I mean, it's it's almost like when you go into a convenience store or a gas station and you open up the door because you're thirsty and, you know, the water count, you know, the water shelf may have all these different ones, but whatever is at your eye level, that is the one that somebody paid that convenience store to put at eye level. And unfortunately, it's not always the cheapest out of pocket. And so when, you know, when you're really trying to figure out, you know, this, question of how do you get down to lowest net costs? How do you control trend? You've got to start with is are your partners doing that with you? Or are they doing something that's kind of causing to swim upstream?
1: So uh, I know you and I have talked about a specific example, like let's, let's personify this either with an insulin conversation or EpiPen or one of these ones I know that we people can remember when that happened in the news. So tell me one of those stories.
2: Sure. So, you know, I think epipens an easy one. I mean, it's not just about formulary, but it kind of gets us into a, the next layer of conversation in the PBN space cluster, which is rebates, right? And, you know, rebates, you know, when you're a consumer, you think rebate, you think, oh, money back, right? You go to Best Buy, you buy your TV, $200 just is out there. If you send some consumer information to Sony, they've decided that $200 coupon back to you is a rebate for your information. Unfortunately, in the pharmacy space, it doesn't really work like that. And really, who's getting the the effect of this is the consumer. So with EpiPen, it it just highlights a few examples of what we've been talking about. So back, you know, 2017, which I can't believe is almost five years ago, but we're getting into an era where EpiPen virtually overnight in the summer of 17 skyrocketed in price. And what happened was the media was quick to jump on this. And and really why the media was out there was not because the carriers were complaining, right? But consumers. And it was consumers of high deductible health plans. So for the employers that are listening, high deductible health plans put first dollar insurance essentially to the members and allowed them to have a little bit more consumerism towards their healthcare spending. And with members on the EpiPen, which... As a life-sustaining drug. This is not a medication people can choose to go get or not. They need this for anaphylactic allergic reactions, And so when people were going to go pick this up, you know, they may have been used to $200, $250 out of their high deductible health plan, but virtually overnight, it was north of $1,000. And in some cases, in some days, more than $2,000 for that fill of brand EpiPen. And so people were angry. I mean, for lack of a better phrase, they were outraged, right, Lester? They were calling up the media. They were reporting this. How can they do this? And that's what people listening may remember is just, wow, EpiPen went up in cost. But what they didn't mention on the news and what was crazy to us at EHIM was that at the exact same time, there was what's called an authorized generic released by the manufacturers of EpiPen. And for those of you listening that may not know all this jargon we're talking about, an authorized generic is when the exact same manufacturer releases their own version of a generic. So this is not, you know, the recipe released and multiple people making it. This is the same company. Um, I'm from Detroit. So automotive is always what pops in my brain with that conveyor belt of cars. So if you were talking about the conveyor belt of EpiPen, you got one going in one direction, box of stamped EpiPen one box going in a different direction, box is stamped epinephrine. But it's the same manufacturer, it's the same formula. So what happened is that that generic drug was released at the exact same time. And a lot of our listeners may have phrases in their mind thinking generic mandate. And you know a lot of programs are set up with this generic rule that if generic generic's available, it has to go through. However, in the case of EpiPen, what also was happening is that EpiPen, a brand drug, had pharmaceutical rebates associated with it, which involves a contract because that's what rebates really are in the PBM space, they're contracts. Even more simple, they're marketing commission dollars that are paid to a PBM. So what was happening is EpiPen was stating to the industry that had rebates affiliated that not only were they gonna pay rebates on EpiPen, but one of the requirements, Lester, of that contract was brand exclusivity meaning no competitive products even their own generic would be allowed to go through so what you saw happen was yes this drug was very expensive there was an option out there that was still very cheap but the pbms that contracted for that rebate couldn't cover it their hands were tied that's why you didn't hear blue cross complaining Humana complaining any of the carriers because contractually they weren't allowed to have that generic come and so to finish this story by that next january Formularies reset, rebates reset, and EpiPen was, you know, moved non-preferred, generic was what was preferred. But then you had the arrival of a brand new product. And Lester, I know you love this example because it, it highlights just what is happening in the industry. And the new product, EpiPen Part 2, if you will, was called AviQ. And AviQ was essentially the exact same ingredient. It was still epinephrine, but put in a different dispensing channel. It was basically put in a speaker box. So if you pushed a button, it gave you directions in English and in Spanish. Um, But that was the only difference. And what was available as a $200 generic was now showing up on formularies is nearly a $6,000 alternative. And so, you know, for this to show up, this is where you follow the money.
1: I get so angry at this conversation because, you know, I, I think as somebody who has had loved ones have a lot of healthcare, I would never argue that if somebody's receiving better care, I'm okay that the price tag is, is more expensive. That's not always mostly true in healthcare. Actually, better healthcare is a lot of times cheaper, but I could wrap my brain around a drug that is you know new to market, doing these amazing things and paying a little bit more money. But when you're talking about the same drug just wrapped in a different wrapper – uh, it, it drives me absolutely crazy to think that the carriers did nothing about it. So they have people coming to them paying different numbers, even though we know that the cost is different on the back end and the manufacturers are in on this and so are the PBM. So it seems like this, you know, collusion of people that we all trust as consumers to manage our costs and, and it doesn't even work. Uh, It's just unbelievable. So you said a word in there, rebates, uh, and I want to dig into that because I feel uh, people are misguided in this word rebate. And I'll take back and and make fun of myself. I was an advisor uh, for health plans for many, many years, and I used to tell clients, hey, this might be the better approach because the rebates we're getting back are more Talk to us about that word and, and, and really the, the reality of it is don't chase rebates.
2: A hundred percent. And and I think with you know rebates, it's just understanding what drives them. And, and the key, if the listeners today are gonna to get one, you know, statement out of this talk, you know, about rebates, is that rebates with the exception of specialty, and I know we're gonna talk a little bit about specialty drugs in a few minutes, are not necessarily one script for a check they are designed to push market share, right? Remember my example of the convenience store. They're meant to put your eyes towards a certain product or your member's utilization towards a certain product. And that product is not going to be the cheapest one out there. And so when we're talking about chasing rebates for years, it was always about how much money can you get back at the end of the year or quarters, you know, six or seven quarters later. When really what you should be trying to figure out is what is your pharmacy benefit manager doing to lower costs immediately? Because those checks that are coming back at the end of the year are money. You maybe you didn't need to spend to begin with.
1: I, I like in that example, of if my accountant and I, my whole tax strategy was to maximize my tax return. Now I want my tax return maximized as much as possible, but after all year trying not to actually spend the money to give to the government in the first place, so that's kind of the same thing in this example. Exactly. Why don't we just not pay overpay for stuff that they feel bad to give me a little bit of a rebate back on the on the back end?
2: Exactly. And and I think for the employers out there, if that's the strategy, your PBM is coming back to you year after year, you know, again, I'm uh, having the assumption that everybody listening to this is trying to help, you know, their own puzzle of healthcare. So I think that, you know, if your PBM is only strategy is raise copays to your employees or redo your formulary so that you can get more rebates, those are not real strategies that are going to have a lasting impact towards trends.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. So we, we talked and hinted on specialty drugs. Uh, I saw a stat uh, that, you know, it's even getting worse. Two to three percent of plan members are driving 50 to 60 percent of, of drug cost, And it's all around that specialty drug. Talk to me about specialty drugs and um, you know what? What are they, and what 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 is the normal consumer doing? Like, what what, what are we doing to help with this?
2: So, specialty drugs, and I, I'm going to have to be redundant in its own name, are for special, unfortunately, conditions, which is how they get their name. Um, they're typically biotech drugs, self injectable medications um, for more serious chronic conditions, things like. Rheumatoid arthritis, cystic fibrosis, HIV, um, just to name a few things out there, certain cancer medications. They're not always self-injectable. We are seeing some more biotech medications be coming out in pill form. So there, there are specialty drugs that can come in pill form. But the, the key and why we're even talking about these is because they are the number one driver of pharmacy, which is in turn why pharmacy is becoming the number one driver of overall healthcare cost increase in trend. Um, Last year, just to kind of give you some quick stats, um, the industry average of increase for specialty drugs was 15.4%. That was the increase in spend. So we're talking double digit every year. Um, The average specialty drug can go for $3,000 a month, um, but we're seeing them certainly upwards. In some cases, $10,000 a month, $15,000 a month. Um, I mentioned we cured hep C years ago. Not at a small price tag, right? $100,000 is the, the treatment course for a three month supply of, that, of one of those sample medications that are curing Hep C. So, you know, when we're talking about specialty drugs, we're not just talking about a class, we're talking about what is driving spend. Um, from the consumer standpoint, um, you know, I think that specialty drugs are a lot of times the first level of treatment, unfortunately, that doctors are going to when one is available. Back to television. They're highly marketed, right? They're out there. Um, typically there's not just one in the class. When one seems to come out, there seems to be three or four competitors at about the same exact time. Um, we saw this with rheumatoid arthritis, especially in the very early days with Humera and Enbril. And now look how many other competitors are just in that class. And so what's happening is, is consumers are being targeted, doctors are quick to write them, and even you know, back to rebates for a moment even some of those rebate programs are influencing how frequently those drugs are even able to go through. So you're seeing these specialty drugs just increase year over year. Um, and, you know, with the consumers, the only strategy that's really been put out there is coupons. And, and members are probably quick, probably going to GoodRx, probably identifying that there are coupons out there to help with some out-of-pocket costs. So that's kind of, you know, from the consumer side, there has been a lot of resource out there. And, and I would argue most members on specialty drugs are using some form of cost savings on their own behalf.
1: So so let's dig on this because, you know, I uh, advise most employers that if they're using coupon cards, it has to be with a strategy and like a PBM, like EHIM that could maximize this. But what people aren't necessarily realizing, right, is this, this coupon card, is essentially just sticking more cost to the employer in this example. Uh, it, it t- so talk to us about the real rationale behind the scenes on these coupon cards.
2: Well, the rationale, I mean, from the pharmaceutical companies was really because of all the high deductible health plans. What they really were trying to do is get people to not have to pay that first chunk, right? I mean, if the medication's a thousand bucks and somebody has a thousand dollar high deductible health plan, these were trying to give people coupons so that they could not only not use their own high deductible health plan, but get them to an out-of-pocket maximum faster so that the drugs would to the consumer be air quote free. And as you were mentioning, yeah, it was sticking it back to the plan sponsor or in a fully insured, the carrier.
1: In that example in there. So uh, let's just take an expensive drug that's $10,000 a month for, for easy math, uh, $10,000 a month. I might have a $4,000 out-of-pocket expenditure. There might be a coupon card for $10,000 for that drug. I use my $4,000 on that coupon card, I'm done. But if that, if that drug costs $10,000 a month, that's $120,000. The employer's paying the other $116,000 of this drug, if I'm doing my math correctly. Is that, is that a fair way of looking at that?
2: that's exactly what's happening correct
1: and, and and so
2: so then what can be
1: done like so i look at this and and i mean I, this is a rhetorical question because i know the answer but like what can be done if you're an employer out there you're looking at now the reverse report that you talked about earlier you talked about earlier pulling a report that is your top quantity if a report is generated now in the top 25 drugs and spend is probably 80 to 90% of the cost that they have spent on their prescription drugs. What can be done about those drugs?
2: And that's what comes back to the strategy and what your pharmacy benefit managers are doing. And I think that, you know, we get into, so now I'll speak specific to EHIM, because this is, a, you know, an a example of what we have done to kind of mitigate some of the risk associated with specialty drugs is to actually put in protocols that not only look to see if coupon programs are available, but actually look at our formulary as a whole to determine if programs exist outside of the actual pharmacy plan to be able to potentially get some of these drugs at no cost to the employer. And so I think you know what is happening is these pharmaceutical companies have a lot of strategies because yes, they're trying to get people on their products, they're trying to pay PBMs to do so, but really they're also fighting for market share. And sometimes the market share outweighs even the cost of the drug to begin with. So in those examples, Lester, what we have looked to be able to do is try to build our formulary. So again, no rebates, nobody influencing EHIM on what's covered or not, towards what programs exist out there and trying to capture any savings mechanisms we can, not only on behalf of the consumer, but really ultimately on behalf of the plan sponsor that's paying for them.
1: So this, these, these opportunities, I have an opportunity, I could do something different, I could source the medication in other ways, whatever that might be. Why am I hearing this from this little old company called EHIM, but this enormous company called any of the other companies that are out there that 83, 84% of the world, why am I not hearing this from those companies, but I'm hearing it from you?
2: It all gets back to aligned incentives, right? And how they're actually making money. And the big ones are easy to pick on because not only are they big PBMs, but they also own the specialty companies that are dispensing those medications. So I think it's, it's really just identifying, again, what makes a PBM profitable and is their profit coming at your ultimate expense.
1: I I will just challenge the audience who's listening to this to just check financials of the big PBMs, the big carriers. If um, it's like Vegas, they do not lose. So, um, you know, Rachel, one of the goals I always have in this is to educate um, you know the audience about uh, proof is in the pudding. Uh, we say down in the in the South. Uh, so, talk to me about an actual client, pick one. I know you have a million stories, but pick one and and let's go through, you know, what was the client doing before? Uh, What did they do? What did you help them do? Uh, What was the impact of this? So, So let's get really tangible in this.
2: Sure, so I think with any example, and as our listeners are, you know, kind of evaluating and soaking up all of this information, I think the key here, is that you have to work with the partners that bring solutions to the table. And the example I'm about to give, it was, you know, we're talking about a Midwest um, privately held company, about just under 800 employees. Um, They were previously self-funded with a large, one of these large PBMs that are out there. Again, it was identified that their partner had misaligned incentives. There was no actionable recommendations for their plan design outside of Lester, you know, coming in and saying, well, we'll increase rebates. We'll look at your discounts. But there was no, here's what's going on in your employees. Here's the health. Here's the wellness. And, you know, just also I want to mention about this particular client, because it may resonate with some of our listeners, they're extremely paternalistic, right? This this is an employer that really cares about their employees. They're not just coming, you know, trying to save money and sticking it to the member. This employer came forward and said, we want to save money. We believe there's a solution, but we're not doing it unless we know our employees' hands are being held. And so... With that kind of environment and really understanding how we're going to onboard a group like that is really the key part of, you know, the beginning of this process. So it wasn't just, you know, bells and whistles were sold to this employer. Here's the strategy. Here's what we're going to do. And because this employer was so tuned in and and truthfully, the, the consultant we wrote this group with also was very hands on and set up weekly phone calls for the 90 days before we even integrated. And I I mention all this because I don't want any listener to think it's a flip of a switch, an easy snap, and boom, you're going to hear the results I'm about to share. It was partnership on all levels. And I think, Lester, to what you're saying, the takeaways from today are there is no easy flip. It's partnership, and it's identifying the right solution providers from the consultant standpoint to the providers that you're picking and not siloing everyone. So we had these weekly implementation calls 90 days out, members were given welcome letters, we communicated with them what medications would you know, behoove them to take from a formulary standpoint. Um, we onboarded, we had reach out with all of these members and I'm pleased to say, you know, what they were spending net of rebates, 184 per employee per month. And, and with EHIM, just for example, with all of these programs we've put in place with specialty drug management, a tighter formulary, with education, we're now at 169 PEPM. And so, and, and the members overall out of packet has also decreased as well.
1: And, and, and I happen to know obviously uh, about this client, um, what's not taken into consideration, Rachel, in this is the number of employees who are now getting medications either for free, or cheaper than they were yesterday, because the advice of your organization for them to either look at different alternatives or get the same program or same uh, medication through a different program. Um, Talk to me about that, because you said that front end letter. So I am an employee, I am on Humira, I get a letter from somebody saying that I might have a, a, a cheaper option to do. Like walk me through that piece of that.
2: Sure, so what we did is we pre-identified members. Again, I cannot stress enough that the, this worked because of the partnership on all levels from everybody right at the employer to us to the consultant who wrote this case. And so with that partnership, we are able to pre-identify members that may be impacted from some of these cost-saving solutions and strategies. We did an early reach out to those members so that, like you mentioned, dear sir or madame, you're on X medication. There may be a strategy for you as of January 1st. Please contact EHIM to begin you know, the onboarding process. No, I was going to
1: say, I want people to, to, to realize this. This is not the HR people doing any additional work. This is not the name of the drug was told to the client. This is just hey, we'd like to send this letter to these people. Can you just help us out with this? And you took care of the rest. And now I look at it from the other perspective. I am now the customer, the patient. I am taking this medication. If you're my family on Revlimed, you're paying $10,000 a month for this drug, you're maxing out your out of pocket. And I get this letter saying, you might have an opportunity to save. Just call this 1 800 number. So when we talk about changing healthcare, we're talking about one phone call?
2: Correct. And so it's one phone call from the member, a few more on our end <laughs> to, to do the work behind it. But I think, and to put this in perspective for you, this particular client. Had we not have stepped in, specialty drugs would have accounted for more than 52% of their overall plan spend. Because we've been able to intervene, we are now at 38% of plan spend. We may increase that number um, as the coming months continue down the road, but we have shaved off such a big portion, so much so that the year-to-date savings as a PEPM for this particular client is $50 a month.
1: I mean, I look at this in a way that says, okay we're not talking of 800 people. We're not talking about a mass number of people, right? We said these stats, two to 3% of the people that are touching your plan are driving 50 to 60% of your costs. So we're talking about a sub-segment of a sub-segment and in 0% of the way did we say that person's not gonna be able to take that medication, only that there might be a different method of getting that person to the same medication or one that might work better for them, but all voluntary in nature. This is a carrot, not a stick. So I can choose to do this or I can choose not to do this. And my incentive is, is me. So I look at this and I'm like, man, you know, just like anything else in the world, I wanna get in shape. I can't eat Twinkies and expect to get in shape. I have to do something. But the something in this, to me, of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings is communicate to your members that they might have a cheaper way of getting their drug.
2: Correct. And I think that just from that communication, and it all gets back to Lester, utilizing the data that is provided. And I know, and I'm looking at the time for our call, so I'm hoping, you know, what's going to resonate to the listeners on this call is that data is there for a reason and data can drive results. And that's what happened with this particular client.
1: I love it. I love it. I love it. Rachel, I am sure that there is going to be an advisor, a CFO, an HR person who says, man, I got to know a little bit more if somebody's listening and wants to get a hold of you and understand EHIM a little bit more, first of all, any place that they could get a hold of you, and then, then also, we didn't really describe what EHIM was, so so you might want to leave them with a little bit of who your company is.
2: Sure. So, first of all, you can find me very easily on LinkedIn. My full name is Rachel Strauss S T R A U S S. I always joke my husband's name is Levi. I can't forget the name Levi Strauss. So there, there you go. And as far as EHIM, we are a National Pharmacy Benefit Manager. Um, I mentioned early on, we play in the boutique space by design. We are not aspiring to be one of the huge conglomerate of pharmacy benefit managers. We're very happy um, in our lane. We're headquartered in Detroit, but we are a national company. We have just shy of 3 million members across the country. And we've been in business 35 years. And I have to plug, we're a woman-owned business. Um, I forgot to mention that, but we are a certified woman-owned business.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Rachel, thank you so much for spreading some knowledge and Thank you for your passion, getting out of bed every day and fighting the good fight. For our Impact Healthcare listeners, please subscribe. Please download. Please share this because the reality of it is clients, employees, employers, brokers, anybody that's in the food chain. This is just a lack of education and understanding that you can do something different. It's 100% the reason we do this podcast. So please go to impacthealthcare.fm if you want to download this or any other actual episode. And please Text us and be part of our community. Text us at 813-537-6992, 813-537-6992. Rachel, thank you for being a guest on our show. Thank you for driving change and thank you for impacting healthcare.
2: Thank you, Dr.
1: Have a good day.
0: You've been listening to Impact Healthcare, People and strategies that are disrupting the health benefits industry with Lester Morales. Remember, the journey to getting 20% savings on your health care benefits starts with total transparency. Visit impacthealthcare.fm backslash journey to access leading industry case studies, compelling member stories, and to check out all of our podcast episodes. That's impacthealthcare.fm backslash journey. Remember to subscribe to the Impact Healthcare podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.